It has been one year, Alpaca Pals. One year ago, on this day, March 11th, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. I can still remember that day vividly because Katie and I recorded an episode that day. It was actually one of the last times that we saw each other in person. Um, That day, Emily Scott from Two Dusty Travelers came on the show to answer our questions about COVID-19, the coronavirus. And I remember at that time thinking that there was absolutely no way that travel would stop. We would just have to take precautions. I had never heard the phrase social distancing. I had not been thinking about like buying masks. The idea of my city ordering businesses to close was like unthinkable. But sure enough, later that week, Katie and I were both sent home from our offices and Toronto completely shut down. And the months since then have been difficult. I think lots of you can probably relate to that. I, like many of you, I'm sure, have felt the effects of isolation, missing my family, missing my friends, missing my coworkers, feeling unmotivated and sometimes low. And in a way, I feel like I am still grieving this past life that we had. But the good news is things are beginning to look up with vaccines being deployed around the world. So we felt that it was a good time to get back in touch with Emily and find out what has changed since our last discussion. Emily Scott is a registered nurse. She's based in Seattle. She holds bachelor's degrees in peace studies and in nursing and a diploma in tropical nursing. She has served on humanitarian medical missions and disaster response teams in eight countries, including treating Ebola patients from Sierra Leone and deploying to Nepal after the 2015 earthquake. Emily is going to explain to us what the coronavirus vaccines mean for the future of this pandemic, whether it's okay to travel internationally yet, and how to travel safely right now if you need to, as well as her general thoughts on the future of travel. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks, happy to be here. I first have to ask you, because I know that you went back and listened to the episode we recorded one year ago. What were your thoughts, like, re-listening to that episode? (laughs) Honestly, my main thought was I can't believe how much is still the same <laughs> that like I don't want to be such a bummer but that just like, we haven't made a whole lot of progress since then <laughs> you know we have way more cases now than we did then and you know we I didn't say a word about masks like which is wild to me now um and we didn't think that uh COVID was airborne at that time so I was like yeah get on a plane I don't know if you have to whatever <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there were a lot of things we didn't know and um, it's also really exciting to think uh how much awesome science has been done since then so we know so much more than we did and we've got vaccines now which is incredible I know I actually have to say like I have learned more about science and just like how science works in the last year than I probably ever did in like my entire education I like have finally wrapped my head around the the idea that like, okay, science changes. Like it's wild how it how like you just don't know any of that. Yes, yes. I think that was a lot of the confusion at the beginning of this where people were like, We're wearing we're not wearing masks, we're wearing masks. 
doesn't anybody know? The experts don't know. I'm like, science is happening in real time, friends. (laughs) You gotta let it happen. We did a brand new virus. We literally don't know anything. (laughs) Yeah. And okay, I know this is a loaded question, but I still want to ask, how are you? How has has the last year been for you? (sighs) How much time do you have? Um, It's been uh, what simultaneously feels like 10 years and also like five minutes. Um, yeah, I think this past week was my one year anniversary of like treating the first COVID patient in the US. And that was wild. Really exhausting. I'm very tired. Very, like everyone else, I'm very ready for this to be over. I'm seeing light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm just hanging on. I don't want to let up. Now is not the time to let up. So hanging in there. Totally. I, I was talking with my dad, actually. And I mean, like everyone has fatigue now and he just gave me this pep talk and he was like, we have the vaccine. This is the final stretch. There is light, like just hold on because from here it's only going to get better. I think it's especially rough and you, I know you can relate to this, like we're in winter right now in North America, which just like makes everything even harder because during the summer, like Katie and I could see each other outside from six feet away. You could still have some semblance of like a social life. But now if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's like you can barely go outside because it's so cold. Yeah, it's rough. We've definitely been having outdoor gatherings. We got one of those like heaters that restaurants use, you know, but it's still like pretty brutal okay I like find myself looking at those online like at least once a week now I'm probably gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna buy one one last (laughs) summer because I was looking at the numbers and I was like I think people think this is over and it's gonna get real real bad so let's buy some heaters now before there's none available that's a good call Okay, so Alpaca Pals, bear with me because for a few minutes, we are now going to be a science podcast. Um, Since we have Emily here, we, of course, need to ask her our burning questions. And we're going to talk about the vaccine because I feel like that's the biggest development that's come out in like recent weeks and months. And it's really important to talk about. Last time we talked, we focused on a lot of the basics about coronavirus. So we talked about symptoms and testing and what a pandemic is and how to protect ourselves from catching the virus. And we addressed a lot of the misconceptions and the misinformation that was floating around at that time. And this episode is linked in the show notes. I think it's it's still got good information there if you want to go back and revisit it. Um, and in it, you gave us some really good advice. You told us to make sure that we're getting our information from reliable science-based sources and that we are diversifying where we get our information from. And I think at this point, most people know what they need to know about the virus itself. So that's why we're going to dig into the vaccine. So in Canada and the USA, there are now a couple different vaccines that are being administered. Of course, it's mostly healthcare workers being vaccinated at this stage, at least here in Canada. Um, But eventually, all of us are going to have the opportunity to get it. I cannot wait. I am going to ball. Like I, I just know. Like I saw on TikTok people like sharing videos of themselves getting the vaccine and I was like crying watching other you people. You will not get be the it. only person crying. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very festive atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. At vaccine clinics, yes. Yeah, but I know that not everyone feels the same <laughs> excitement that I feel. I have like zero vaccine hesitancy. I'm just going to be honest about it. But Emily, we're going to go through some of the common fears that might make someone feel hesitant about it because it is valid, I guess, to like feel some hesitancy about something new. 
So I'm going to pretend I'm vaccine hesitant, and I'm going to ask you to respond to the reasons I have for this hesitancy. Okay, so Emily, I'm nervous to take the vaccine because I think it was developed too fast. It's been rushed. In the past, vaccines have taken over 10 years to develop. There's no way they could have made a vaccine this quickly that's safe. Yeah, I mean, I want to address what you first said about vaccine hesitancy being normal and acceptable, and that's absolutely true. And I think it's totally appropriate to have questions and to have a healthy skepticism, but also to listen to experts and not get sucked down the like social media rabbit hole of misinformation. And that's very hard for people right now because there's just so much misinformation that's being purposefully put out there by people to scare you. So I think it's okay to ask these questions. And if you see something weird online, it's okay to ask, but you got to go to the experts <laughs> to get that answer, not some random on YouTube. Um, so um, as far as it being rushed, I like to change that wording to say that it was prioritized, not rushed. Rushed has a connotation that steps were skipped, which no steps were skipped that we would do in any other vaccine um, trial process or development process. No steps were skipped. It was just prioritized. So any researcher or science researcher will tell you they spend an incredible amount of time, like of the 10 years that it takes to get a vaccine out, they spend an incredible amount of that time just like waiting around, waiting around for someone to approve their funding or their paperwork or to find enough trial participants to take the vaccine or the vaccine trial ends when a certain number of people get sick. So if you're testing an Ebola vaccine and there's and nobody has Ebola, that trial is going to take a long time. But if you're testing a COVID vaccine in America and you're waiting for a certain number of people to get sick, that's a pretty pretty quick trial because it's everywhere. <laughs> like that's the only upside to it is like you're going to get data quickly because our, we're just a petri dish in this country. So all of those roadblocks were just removed. Everybody in the world was like, we need to work on this now. There's no like fighting for funding or like which products is going to go first. It's like COVID's going first. It's cutting to the front of the line of every everything out there. Fix it, you know, which is incredible and a testament to what scientists can do if the whole world would work together and just throw money at a problem. It's pretty incredible. I'd also say people need to understand that mRNA vaccines are not brand new. They've been studied and worked on and developed for years before this. They just have not been approved for the general public, not because they were unsafe, but just because there hasn't been a need. So now there's a very much a need. And when this all started, I was just reading an article the other day about the people who were developing the Moderna vaccine and how they, when this happened, they were like, oh my God, we already have the backbone of the vaccine that will fix this. And like, we have it, we're ready. Whereas if it had been 10 years ago, we would have had to start from scratch, but they already had all that data and all that research done. So we got very lucky. On that note, could you explain what mRNA means in like layman's terms and how it's different, if that's possible, and how it's different from the vaccines that like all of us are used to getting like throughout our childhood? Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of vaccines. Some vaccines inject you with like a dead version of the virus, like the flu vaccine, I believe still is that way. The mRNA vaccines that come from Pfizer and Moderna, so it inject you with a little strand of mRNA that's wrapped in a lipid bubble or a fat bubble to like protect it. Because actually mRNA is very, it breaks down very easily, which is nice because once it's in your body, it does its job and then it's gone. It's not like it's sticking around in your body for 30 years. It just kind of is like very fragile and then it just kind of breaks apart and it's gone. So the mRNA goes into your cell and it's like 
a lot of us have been saying it's like a Snapchat message. It like tells your cell to produce this spike protein, which is a tiny piece of what's on coronavirus, on COVID, and then it goes away. It's just like a Snapchat message, and then it's gone. It just degrades and it goes away. It's not going to harm you. It's not going to change your DNA. It does not go into the part of the cell that would change your DNA. It's not going to do something to you 10 years down the line. It's, it just disappears. Um, so then your cell sees that little spike protein that's on the outside of the COVID virus, and it starts producing antibodies to that. It's like, what is this? And starts producing antibodies. So that by the time you are exposed to COVID in the real world, your body's like, I've seen these before. These don't belong here. And they go after and um, fight them all off. So you essentially already have immunity. And I think it's also important to note that the part of the spike protein that the mRNA encodes for is not able to give you COVID. It's not a live vaccine. I heard someone, and I wish I could remember who, because I use this all the time, someone saying that, you know, the spike getting injected with the spike protein would be like, if you swallowed the wing of a bee, you're not going to get stung. If you swallowed a whole bee, that would suck. So if you have the mRNA that just codes for the spike protein, it's not. it literally is not factually, scientifically, biologically possible for it to give you COVID. It cannot happen. Oh, wow. Okay. So basically, it's just like quickly teaching your body what to do if COVID comes into your body. And then it's like, okay, bye. I'm leaving now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, which leads nicely into my next question. Reminder, I'm pretending I this is this didn't actually happen to me. <laughs> I already had COVID-19, so I have antibodies and therefore I don't think I need to get the vaccine because my body already has the antibodies. I get this one a lot. It's one of the more common reasons I hear from people that say they're not going to get vaccinated. It really is recommended to still get vaccinated if you've had COVID. We know you can catch it again. We also know there are new variants out there going around, and we don't have enough data on that to know if you can catch those too. And immunity caused by infection is pretty variable. You know, you have cases where people still have antibodies months later, but also cases where antibodies fade and they're not immune anymore. And there's really no way to know that for sure based on how sick you got or like it just isn't, there's no way to predict. Whereas immunity from a vaccine is a lot more dependable and consistent. Everybody gets the same dose. So we can say with some certainty, once you've been vaccinated, you're 95% less likely to get sick with COVID for X amount of time. I can't tell you how long that is right now because the only way to know is that for sure is time. But, you know, experts are obviously hoping it's going to be at least a couple years. <laughs> you know, it's, this is the other things we're predicting, but there's, there's no way to know that for 100% certainty until we just wait and see. I think it's important also to think about realistically comparing risks. And a good answer for any sort of vaccine hesitancy at all. You have to compare how risky it would be to get COVID again after you've already had COVID. You either have to like get sick or maybe be hospitalized or maybe die. Or you could get the vaccine and there's essentially no risk. <laughs> like no one's been hospitalized or died or in the trials, you know. So the, the risks just balance out to why not get vaccinated. Okay, here's my, my last hesitancy fear. Okay. I'm nervous about the side effects. So I've heard that some people have allergic reactions, which is actually relevant to Katie and I because we both have anaphylaxis to various foods. And yeah, we don't know what the long-term effects of the vaccine will be. So that makes me afraid to get it. Yeah, totally. As far as the allergies issue, I think it got a little blown up 
at the very beginning when they started vaccinating and a couple people had anaphylaxis and it was, you know, got a little scary, you know, but it has come down to that unless you have a history of an anaphylactic allergy to part of the vaccine, then you're good to get it. Uh, if you have a history of anaphylaxis to other things, what we normally have people do is just wait in the waiting room for 30 minutes afterwards instead of 15 minutes so that we can watch you and monitor you. If you're going to have an anaphylactic reaction, it's going to happen pretty fast. I think anybody who's ever had anaphylaxis knows. And then we can treat you with epinephrine. And nobody wants to do that, but it is actually easily treatable. It's not going to kill you, you know. Again, the risk-benefit you're definitely more likely to die of COVID than you are to die of anaphylaxis in a setting where, you know, any clinic is going to have epi to give you and solve it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm not hesitant anymore. Now (laughs) I know I'm getting the vaccine. (laughs) And so now I just have questions about what happens after I get the vaccine. But before I ask those questions first, this is just like, I'm just wondering you were mentioning before that like the vibe in the clinic for giving out the vaccines is really nice. And I just, can you describe it for me? Like, what is, what is it like there every day? Like, is it really happy? Are people like, just give us a little description. It's really happy. Yeah. I'm at the vaccine clinic at my hospital and it's really happy. Everyone's very excited to be getting it. Um, You know, people are taking selfies and taking videos and we finally like got a little selfie wall that says like vaccine strong on it so people can take selfies afterwards. Last week we started, we moved on to our phase 1B. So that's like people 65 and over. So we allowed family members of healthcare workers to come and be vaccinated one day. And that was so fun because you get to be like, oh, who do you know here? And they're also proud to talk about, oh, my daughter's a nurse or whatever. You know, it was, it was really fun. Aww. <laughs> Okay, so these are questions for once you've had the vaccine. And I think this one is one that's on everyone's mind. What happens next? Do you need to continue wearing a mask? Do we need to continue socially distancing? Does it mean I'm home free? I can just like, go back to normal life like how it was before? Yeah, no one's gonna like this answer. (laughs) But I'm gonna (laughs) give it to you anyway. Because I'm gonna tell you the truth. So I'm waiting for two things before I feel like I can sort of open up my bubble and be a little less cautious. I'm waiting for data that proves that the vaccine prevents transmission to others. The first thing that we want in a vaccine is that it prevents from you from getting sick, which these vaccines do. Like 95%, you're not going to get sick. Almost 100% that you're not going to get severely ill or die. So that's excellent. The secondary endpoint in the trials that they're looking at now is... Does it prevent transmission? So is it possible that I was vaccinated and I have COVID, but I have absolutely no symptoms. I never develop any symptoms. I never knew I had COVID, but I could give it to someone else. Is that possible? We don't know yet. You know, you want to get data that shows that it saves lives and then get it out there so it can start saving lives. And then the next thing we start looking at is, okay, does it, pre- does it prevent transmission? And I'm, I'm hoping to get that data soon, but we don't have it yet. And, you know, I will say also, there's a lot of people going around saying like, well, I don't need to get vaccinated because it doesn't prevent transmission. So I don't have any social responsibility. I'm like, no one knows that. No one in the world knows if it does or doesn't prevent transmission. Now, we think based on historically how vaccines work and biology works that it will, but we don't know. So anyone who's telling you like, don't get vaccinated because it doesn't prevent transmission, that is not 
knowable information right now. <laughs> no one knows. Um, and then the second thing that I am waiting for is getting closer to herd immunity, getting our cases down. I mean, our cases are, at least in the U.S., absolutely explosive right now. So we need to get somewhere near herd immunity or at least immunity in your little bubble or your community before you start letting up on these uh, precautions. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. And it makes total sense. So I guess like as a follow up, here's the situational question that I'm asking, because it's like truly a question that I've have had in my head. Um, I've been very careful around my own parents, like I have barely seen them since the pandemic started. And it really sucks. And I keep thinking like, at least in Canada, the rollout is going to be that like my parents will likely get the vaccine far, far, far before I do. So if they have the vaccine and they're being careful, which they have been this entire time, is it like theoretically safe for me to see them because they can't catch it from me? And if they're continuing to be safe, then I don't risk catching it from them accidentally, potentially. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I totally hear you. I think that's hard. We get into a lot of gray areas with this, and it, there's so many different factors. I think especially if we get data saying, you know, the vaccine prevents transmission, that would be fantastic. But if both your parents, I'm just thinking this out, what I would do. If both your parents are immunized and they are like in their own bubble, they're not seeing anybody else, and if you are trying to not see, not see anybody else as well. That seems pretty safe to me. For example, right now, like I see my mom because mental health wise, she just couldn't take it anymore. Like I'm her only child and her only person to be around. So I am crazy safe at work and I do the very best I can, but I do see her and we've had conversations about what level of risk that is. But if I, God forbid, were to get her sick, we have a bubble, so it would stop right there. None of us, me and my husband and her, we're not seeing anybody else. So at least it would stop right there. But no vaccine, no medication of any kind is 100% effective. It just isn't. So it is possible that you could get COVID and bring it to your parents still. Yeah, yeah I think you raise a really good point. And that's like something I've noticed throughout this pandemic myself is like, there are such different degrees of comfort between people. Like I am highly anxious. I just overthink everything. So every time I see my parents, I just think about that tiny little margin of error, despite the fact that I am like, so, 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 so careful. And I think it like really points to how important it is to communicate during this time, because I've noticed like, the way that people communicate, like really affects how comfortable you feel like, they're friends of mine that it's like, I know that you feel more comfortable, just communicate with me what that means for you and what that looks like for you. I think this year has been like a real lesson in that. Yes, absolutely. It's so important to be able to have those conversations and not be made to feel like you're the difficult one for wanting to be safe. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. So, okay, those are all my questions, but is there anything else that you'd like to share specifically about the vaccine? Oh, I wanted to touch on really quick long-term side effects we had mentioned, and if that is a thing. I, I do think it's important for people to understand because it seems like this vaccine is so new, and I hear a lot of people saying, well, what will happen to me a year, five years, ten years from now? How can we possibly know? So all vaccines throughout history, generally you've they're going to have a side effect on a timeline of hours to days to weeks. You're not going to have something randomly crop up years later, like this infertility. 
misinformation that just won't die. <laughs> it does not cause infertility. And I think people need to understand that that's how this vaccine works. It's not going to stick around in your system for years and years and years. I, I tell people it's a little like if you ate some bad, iffy food by accident, you might be worried about having food poisoning for a couple of days. But five years later, you're not like, God, I wonder if I'm still going to... Like, I'm really worried still about that hot dog that I ate. You know, like, it's gone. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. So yeah, that's an important thing for people to understand. And we do already have the first people who got these vaccines in early trials, got them in March 2020. So we're coming up on a full year of safety data. No one's died from this vaccine yet. Can you tell us about your vaccine experience? Like what it felt like, how you felt after, and how you're feeling now? I was so excited. <laughs> It was like the first day of my hospital, I was like signing up for a slot. Yeah, I felt my first shot, I had a sore arm and that was it. And I, the whole time I was just like so excited because I was like, my spike proteins are doing their thing. Um, my second shot that I got three weeks later, so I got the Pfizer vaccine. I had a little more side effects and that is, um, that does, you know, match with the um, data from the trials that you are more likely to have some more side effects with the second shot but it's extremely important to go with your second shot anyway if you are not fully vaccinated until you've had both your shots. So I was tired and achy, kind of like kind of flu-like, starting 24 hours after my shot about, and then kind of that evening. And then I just went to bed for like 11 hours and woke up feeling totally fine. So for me, again, I was so excited that, you know, this is an immune response. It's not the vaccine making you sick. It's your body, the things that you feel after a vaccination, like a sore arm or a low fever or feeling tired, that's an immune response. It's not an illness. It's actually evidence that your body is doing what we want, you know, the vaccine to have it do. That said, if you don't have all the symptoms, it doesn't mean it's not working. Everyone's different. So I was just so excited. I was like, oh, my immune system's doing its thing. I'm just going to go to bed and I'll wake up, woke up the next morning totally fine. So it's way better than having COVID. Again, you know, compare the risks. Yeah. If you feel any symptoms, that means it's working. So that's something to celebrate. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, like, I have obviously, like, for traveling, have had quite a lot of vaccines. And I always think about the time I got the yellow fever vaccine. And it was the only one that made me feel, like, really ill. And this is, like, etched in my brain. And I still don't know why. Everyone's so different. It's really hard to predict what you'll have. I will say, so many people have come and had like needle phobia and been really anxious like they want to get it but they're really anxious and 90% of the time I give the shot and they look at me and they go is that it? It's pretty funny re-listening to the episode that uh, we recorded a year ago um, because in it I talk about how I'm like really hopeful that I'll still go on my trip to India, which was booked for May. <laughs> Obviously, that did not happen. It's just like cute thinking about how hopeful I was during that time. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> and yeah, so you've been running a travel blog for a long time, as have I. And your social media um, has been focused on travel up until <laughs> the pandemic. And now it seems like your social media is mostly consisting of healthcare-related content. Um, so I wanted to start by asking, like, how has your relationship to travel shifted now? I think, like, a lot of us are really missing it. But how are you fusing these, these two subjects and, like, making travel still part of your 
social presence and your life in general? I mean, I am desperately missing travel too. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not. This is probably the longest I've been without being on a plane. But for me, the priority right now is getting this under control so that we can travel safely again. And where I think I can make the biggest difference in that is putting as much public health information out there as I possibly can. There's just been like an absolute absence of it, at least in the United States. So I'm trying to fill that gap. Um, And in the meantime, I'm just trying to be patient and stay home. You know, we have done a little bit of like camping, um, a little, maybe like a road trip to an Airbnb that we could drive to, or we were like only in our bubble. Um, so we actually had a trip booked to Maui for because my husband has a week off in February this month. And we were like, I don't know, this seems like we'll just book it and it's totally refundable. And then, <laughs> you know, in the beginning of January, I was like, yeah, let's just cancel that. That's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> I think we got a little, a little too hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's tempting though, because I've seen those flight deals and it's like, you can rebook. And I'm like, ooh, I wonder how far out like I could rebook in case it doesn't happen, which it probably won't. <laughs> they gave us a year to reuse those miles. So okay, fingers crossed. I'll be on a plane within a year from now. Uh, Okay, so when we talked last March, um, we talked a bit about your thoughts on traveling. And at that time, you said that you did not feel like it was the right time to travel because things were changing so quickly all around the world. And you mentioned a lot of the risks in traveling. So you were saying if you travel, you risk becoming a vector for spreading the virus you can find yourself putting added stress on the healthcare system of a country that you're visiting. And there were other risks you mentioned as well. Have you seen your predictions play out in terms of like what you predicted would happen to travel? I mean, this is such an obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it. (laughs) Yes. I'm so tired of being right. I say it to my family all the, every time I come home from work, I'm like, I'm so tired of predicting the worst and having it happen. I'm so tired of being like, this is going to get bad, guys. This is going to be real bad. (laughs) And then it does. I just want to be wrong. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, I uh, definitely feel like I I don't know that if you had asked me then, I don't think I could have imagined that it would have gone on this long. But yeah, it got pretty much as bad as I worried it might. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, like, people are still traveling just I mean, it's not recommended, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So according to the UN's World Tourism Organization, international travel is down 50% in 2020 compared to 2019. As you mentioned, like you've been traveling a bit domestically, Katie and I have as well. Um, So that demand for domestic travel has risen significantly, especially in the US and Canada, which comes as no surprise because that's definitely the least risky form of travel we can be doing. But I think that overall, those numbers suggest that most people around the world are staying close to home. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still people who are traveling internationally. And it has become a bit of a controversial topic. (laughs) Most recently in Canada, a lot of politicians are being publicly criticized for traveling during the pandemic. I personally have very mixed feelings on this. I think that travel is a very personal decision that depends on your personal risk tolerance and 
also, I guess, like the status of the outbreak, where you live and where you plan to travel to. And I think especially if you're a public figure, you need to also be considering like what message it sends if you do decide to travel. But I would say, like for me, it feels like a no. <laughs> but I also, it's hard because I also recognize that there are people who need to travel. Like there are people who need to travel for work or for family or for commitments. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Emily? No, I agree with you. I think we should be leaving any international and domestic travel, if you have to get on a plane, I think we should be leaving that travel for essential reasons only. The fewer people that are in airports and on planes, the less risky it is for everyone. We should be leaving air travel for people who really need it. If you've got work or a family emergency, like you said, you know, so we're not endangering those people who truly need to travel with people who are traveling for spring break like when it's just not necessary it's just I mean it sucks I, I agree it sucks but it just you don't have to travel right now I mean and I've spoken to flight attendants who are terrified and they've said the same thing they're like we would just like to have as few people on our planes as humanly possible and I you know I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people who work in the travel industry who are feeling decimated financially right now and like who would completely disagree with everything I just said. And I don't want to discount that. I don't think there are any good options here. This is very much like my husband's a teacher. And this is very much like the argument about opening or closing schools. I'm like, both options suck. <laughs> Let's choose the option where the fewest people die. That's my feeling. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. And I think what I find like very tough, especially like being a travel blogger myself, is this idea that like, if I were to travel internationally and share that with my audience, that's essentially me condoning it and saying like, and this is something I'm seeing bloggers do, like traveling somewhere on a press trip to promote that place, like the Maldives are everywhere all over my feed lately. And it's like, okay, like, you need to travel for work. I can I can understand that argument, but then to be promoting it as a destination during the pandemic feels like it just feels a bit icky to me. Yeah. I don't know. I totally agree. And I see a lot of people saying like to each their own and it's a personal decision and like if I feel safe, it's fine. But it's it's not because your actions don't only affect you. And if you bring COVID to a little island that doesn't have any COVID and doesn't have the health services to deal with an outbreak, that's a problem. Or if you, you know, have a million followers and then tons of them go and do the same thing because, well, so-and-so felt safe doing it. On top of the fact that, like, safe is not a feeling. <laughs> we have <Yeah>. data <sighs> showing what is safe. I mean, we have studies showing that people feel safer around people that they know, they're around their loved ones, people that they know and love. So. A lot of outbreaks are being fueled by people having family gatherings, like at Christmas and Thanksgiving, when those are actually very high-risk situations, but people feel safe because they're around people that they love and trust. So just be like, oh, well, I feel safe flying doesn't mean anything when we know that actually you have to go to a very crowded area and for a long period of time, and like it's a high-risk situation. It just is. Hmm. Safe is not a feeling that is like... <laughs> the biggest takeaway for me so far because it's so true. I just true. wrote that down. I just wrote <laughs> it down. <laughs> um, and like, what would you say? And 
this is some of the fodder I hear like a lot of bloggers saying it, that like planes allegedly aren't quite as dangerous as we initially thought. And like being on a plane like is the same as being in a grocery store, just like these arguments are floating around a lot. So could you talk a bit about like what the actual risks are right now of traveling internationally, like not just on a plane, but in general? Yeah. Being on a plane, being the same risk as being in a grocery store is my personal pet peeve. <laughs> because in a grocery store, you are hopefully in and out in a limited amount of time. You are distanced. It's a very large space. And most places are requiring you, at least where I am in Washington, you have to wear a mask to be in a grocery store. Whereas when you're on a plane, it could be five, nine, 14 hours that you're in this small space and you can't socially distance unless you, I mean, I guess some flights are still leaving middle seats open, but even that is that six, that's not six feet. I don't think, you know, and who knows who's wearing a mask and who's not and who has quarantined and who's not. I've heard many stories of people flying knowingly COVID positive because they know they have COVID and they need to get where they're going. On top of that, and like I know that there have been studies, and I agree that the air is circulated in the plane in a way that, like that, that the ventilation is good and that makes it lower risk. I agree, but I I do think the other risk factors kind of outweigh that. And then we're also not even factoring in the airport. Depending on where you're going and how busy it is, you may be trapped in a small unventilated area with a lot of people who may or may not wear their masks for a long period of time. So. To me, that is a super spreader event right there. I have a question. Can I ask? So it's along the line of bubbles. So let's say like you can't have a bubble that doesn't live in the same country, can you? Like say you live by yourself in an apartment in like New York City and your parents and like sister have been quarantining and staying together in their own bubble in like Florida and you hop on a plane to go to see them and it's just you like... That's not, you've broken your bubble, right? By being on the plane and in the airport and in the taxi to get to wherever, you have broken your bubble. Again, it's all a spectrum, but to be the safest you possibly could be, you'd have to quarantine for 14 days once you got to your destination. Yeah. And I've actually been wondering myself, like, I mean, I'm just thinking about the way the Canadian government communicates it, which is essentially the same, like when you land somewhere, you need to quarantine for 14 days. And I just think, wouldn't you want to quarantine beforehand as well to make sure you're getting onto the flight COVID free? Like, shouldn't there be a quarantine on each end? Yeah, <laughs> ideally. I mean, that's what makes all this so hard. Okay, so, I mean, international travel is not recommended at this time. Yeah. I think that's the answer we've landed on. But let's talk a bit about domestic travel because that's something that all of us have been doing. And I do think there is a way to do it safely, but I will let you tell us because you know science. So how safe is domestic travel right now, really? Yeah. I mean, if you, to me, if you're going to travel in a way that puts you in a crowd, Planes, trains, buses, it's all the same difference to me, same risks. My husband and I personally have been doing road trips and staying at Airbnbs. I feel like if you search the Airbnb listing and they a lot of times now will talk about their COVID precautions and they often are leaving a full day in between parties so that they can deep clean. So I think that's pretty 
low risk. And if you need to get out of your house just to not lose your mind, I get it, you know. If you just stop only for gas and food for takeout, and then when you get to your location, you follow all the same guidelines you were following at home, you can't just have a party because you're in a different location. It's still only your bubble, only people you live with. That's what we've been doing. Yeah, that's what we've been doing too. Just like a lot of camping, driving our own car, and just like minimizing contact with literally anyone. It's like just like your own little bubble traveling. Exactly. So I know a lot of us in the travel community are hoping that the vaccine rollout will make travel more of a possibility in 2021. So what would you say are realistic expectations for how the vaccine may impact travel accessibility this year? Like, do you foresee that um, international travel may become more within reach in the coming months? (laughs) It's very hard to predict. There are just so many variables. And now when you add in these new variants, it just feels like we're already in a race against this thing. And now even more so, we've got to get everybody vaccinated as fast as we can. And we know more than ever that we are not safe until everyone is safe. So if you're looking at not vaccinating anyone in Africa until 2022 then you're going to still keep getting variants popping up over there, cases coming from there. We really have to see this as a global effort. So I don't know the answer to to that. I personally am imagining that I will book a flight for my husband's Thanksgiving break, and it will still be a refundable refundable flight. But I'm hoping that for Thanksgiving and Christmas, I'm going to be able to fly somewhere warm and sunny. That's my plan. Could you talk a little bit about like what these variants mean and how they're sort of changing like the face of coronavirus around the world. Yes, I think that's hugely important because I think they hit the news and it's really scary. And my thing is always facts over fear. And I think every time you see a mutation or a variant, it's really scary. For the general public, it shouldn't hugely change what you're doing already. You should be doubling down on what you're already doing. You already know how to protect yourself. Wear your mask, double mask if you want to, stay away from people who aren't in your household, etc, etc. You're like, you, we all know we're a year into this, we should know how to protect ourselves. It, the virus has not figured out how to like crawl inside your mask. Like that's not gonna happen. Masks still work. It's just to the point where like, risky situations are now riskier. It takes less exposure to get you sick Something you might have gotten away with before, you're not going to get away with now. And I think it's hugely important to also understand that these variants happen because every time the virus is transmitted and someone else gets it, this is when mutations happen within the virus. So this is why you're seeing variants pop up in places with totally uncontrolled outbreaks. So the mo- if you don't want to have any more you know, scary mutant viruses, stop letting it spread. <laughs> Right. I didn't know that. Like, that makes total sense. Like, UK, Brazil. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I like trying to explain to it people, like, the, I also want people to understand, I have so many things I need people to understand, but I saw this headline <laughs> going around that, like, that said the virus is learning to evade vaccines. The virus is not learning. It does not have a brain. It does not have intent. Every time a virus is transmitted, it has, it, mutations occur. Some of them are meaningless. It's like a typo in a sentence. You can mistype a word and you'd still get the sentence fine and it's totally fine. doesn't mean mean anything. Sometimes you get a typo that messes up the whole meaning of your sentence and that's what happened in South Africa. We got 
a mutation that sucks because it makes it more transmissible and in so far what we can see a little less receptive to the vaccines. But the vaccines still work. It's not all or nothing. If you have a vaccine that's 60% effective or whatever, that's absolutely better than zero. No reason to panic. And then the quicker we vaccinate, the more people who are immunized, like the likelihood of more dangerous variants goes down. Yes. Aaron sort of sparked this idea in me, which was the idea of quarantining before and after you hop on a plane. And to me, it almost feels kind of foolish not doing that like every time you travel now. Like you could be hosting all types of viruses. You know, in North America, we only typically have 10 days vacation. So you could use your entire vacation days quarantining when you arrive somewhere. So like, I'm curious about how you imagine the future of sort of travel habits and like the way we travel changing. Do you think like there's any opportunity or is like North America too capitalist to give anybody more vacation days? Oh, I I mean, I don't think, God, that would be awesome. I don't envision a future in which they're going to give us enough vacation time to quarantine. That all comes down to risk reduction. You're never going to be able to completely eliminate risk. I don't think COVID's going anywhere. Like, hopefully we'll get a handle on it. I don't think it's going to disappear. We are past that point, I think. So if you had a situation of very low community spread where you are living and where you are traveling, it would be reasonable to me to quarantine for a few days if you can or, you know, just be extra, extra careful, not see anybody else or, you know, that you might see as this is assuming we're back to sort of getting to, toward normalcy and then get a test before you go. Cause I assume rapid testing should be happening more and more. Get a test before you get on the plane. Is it perfect? Is it hundred percent? No, because you could in theory be incubating the virus and not have enough viral load to test positive yet, but it's something it's reducing risk. I think there's going to be a lot of, I hope there will be a lot of that, a lot of requiring tests before you go anywhere, when you arrive somewhere. I hope easier and easier tests are going to come out that you can like swab your cheek and check in five minutes. That's what I think is coming. In in addition to probably having to show your vaccine card every place you go. (laughs) And for the long run, we'll probably all be wearing masks on planes. I mean, I gotta tell you, I mean, I don't want to barricade myself in my house for the rest of my life, but... I haven't been sick at all this year. It's really Me nice. neither. It's been great. I love it. <laughs> I also, I was telling my partner, this is so weird, but I actually kind of like wearing the mask because I just feel like kind of invisible in a way that as a woman, you just don't get to experience in life. And I love it. I totally like, agree. Like no one cat calls me anymore. Yep. If you got a mask and sunglasses, you're going to do whatever you want. I'm self-conscious of my lips, so I prefer only revealing my eyes to the public. (laughs) Um, I've also found that, like, I feel less self-conscious about myself in public. Like, the other day I was walking through the grocery store just singing to myself (laughs) out loud, and I was like, would I do this if I didn't have, like, two masks on and no one, like, could tell who I was? (laughs) Yeah, it will be fascinating to see how society returns to normal and, like, what habits we've all picked up that didn't seem weird during the pandemic and then afterwards we're like oh this isn't normal (laughs) yeah so okay so the sense I'm kind of getting is like we can't expect travel to just like flip back to the way it was I mean in 2019 like there will be some form of mask wearing and testing and COVID vaccine um, card presenting And quarantining pretty much everywhere we go, is it like pretty safe to assume that's the norm for the next few years? I think so. 
Yeah. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that. I'd rather I, know. I'd rather know. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's realistic to. I, I really hope we're going to move past needing people to quarantine for fourteen days. If we can get more and more reliable tests and quicker tests, all of this, everything relies on us getting community transmission down. Nothing works right now when it's totally out of control. Like, there's just nothing will work. There's just way too much virus. If we can get it down to where there's only a few cases and a few hotspots and we can, like, get back to where we were contact tracing and isolating those cases, then there's no need to quarantine for 14 days because you probably, you know, don't have COVID. You can get a quick test and, you you know, you were likely fine. Right now, it's just so out of control. There's no way to do that. And this sort of like leads nicely into my next question, which is a little like going back to the vaccine a little bit, but about like sort of global accessibility, because I'll just say it like one of the things that really bothers me about people who plan to refuse the vaccine is like, we literally are the most privileged people in the world right now to have access to this incredible piece of science that is literally going to save our lives and our jobs and our economies. Like, it is such a privilege to have this opportunity to be one of the first people in the world to have this vaccine. And I find myself thinking often about, you know, places around the world that I have traveled to or would like to travel to. And I wonder how how long will it be for those people to have access? I think it's like one of the realities of the world these days. But what can we expect for countries that are not as privileged as we are? Yeah, it's going to take longer for them, which is deeply inequitable and awful. And, you know, like I said, we're none of us are safe until the whole world is safe. And I feel you. I mean, I have very close friends in East Africa that I'm very worried about. And I feel horrible that I've been vaccinated and I don't even know when they ever will be. But I'm, I am, I think this is another thing, another thing I want people to know that I get a lot of people asking me why, if we have Moderna and Pfizer, why don't all the other vaccine companies stop what they're doing and just start churning out Moderna and Pfizer vaccines? And what we need is actually an array of vaccines that work in different ways because these Moderna and Pfizer vaccines aren't going to work for a lot of places in the developing world. They need to be kept super cold. And that's just, and they need, and there are two dose vaccines. So for mobile populations, like for homeless people or refugees, like you can't get someone to come back in three weeks. It's just, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, I've been on vaccination campaigns like in Uganda where we've got like this janky old like cooler that all the vaccines are in. They're trying to keep them cold. I mean, cold chain technology is a massive thing in trying to vaccinate in limited resource settings. So the new data we just got recently about the Novavax vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Both can be just kept at regular fridge temperature, which is huge. And one of them is only a single dose vaccine, which is fantastic. So now we're starting to get more tools in our belt that we can use in different settings. So that's super helpful. The more vaccines we have, the better. And hopefully that means we'll get out to some of those places faster. Yeah. And how long do you think like it would take for the entire world? I mean, I guess that's the goal is like we want the entire world to be vaccinated. Is that like five, 10 years down the road? Emily's eyes just like widened. <laughs> the pure <laughs> shock on her face. That's what question. I think about at night. I literally lie awake at night like, when will we all be vaccinated? It's just so funny because my world has 
over the past year shrunk so small. I literally at the beginning of this, like I saw the first COVID patient in the US and I was like, my job is to contain this patient. So I stop this outbreak and I will save the world. <laughs> like, and that obviously didn't happen. Um, and then I was like, okay, 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 okay. I'll take care of like, like Washington. We'll get the outbreak under control in Washington. Then I was like, okay, maybe I can just make sure my hospital was safe. And it kept getting smaller and smaller. And like, literally now I'm just like, all I want to do is get me and my husband and my mom vaccinated so I can breathe. I just used to be such a bigger picture person. And like, normally I would be very, very worried about what is happening in East Africa. And like, I have no idea what the data is in East Africa right now. You know, I just like, all I can look at is Washington and like, what's the next step here? I'm very excited for my gaze to be able to broaden a little bit because it's just not so serious all the time. Okay, we'll call you in one year and then we'll talk about that. I have a much better idea of what's going on in a year. Yeah. I'm afraid to ask you this question, but I think it's just so wild to me and like coincidental that you saw the first patient ever in the US with the coronavirus. I hope you don't feel any guilt. It's just, I can't even imagine being in your shoes. Like, what, how does that feel knowing that? Uh, I see a therapist. <laughs> I, know, I was like, I'm so sorry. This is a really no, heavy question. I don't care. I have a whole, like, therapy highlight on our Instagram. Like, everybody, I think everybody's going to need to see a therapist right now. At that time, we also didn't know that asymptomatic spread was a thing. So we genuinely thought we had contained it. Like, that was late January, and we didn't have enough another case for a month so we were like we did it you know <laughs> we didn't have any idea it was still spreading so yeah I definitely have had to grapple with that with feeling like well, I wanted to fix it and I couldn't but this is obviously way bigger my poor therapist is like you can't control this no one can control this we know now it's not a one-man job it's a it's a whole community situation yes yes truly yeah we're all in this together for sure <laughs> all right okay now I have I have two more questions and these are sort of I wouldn't say they're lighter questions I wish I had lighter questions <laughs> to ask I'll throw one in like right at the very end okay what are your biggest takeaways and learned lessons from the last year and it doesn't have to be like related to the pandemic directly just like things you may have learned about yourself or about your community or life in the last year as a result of what life has been like I mean I think personally it's been a process of learning what people really matter to me and removing the people in my life that aren't willing to take my safety seriously or take the community safety seriously or aren't willing to have communication about, I'd like to see you, but what does that mean? Um, I think a lot of people are probably experiencing that right now. I think it'll be interesting to come out of this and see who is still in all of our lives and who kind of exited and don't need to come back. More pandemic related, that I think is super important, is that misinformation is super deadly. I had no idea how deadly, and I had no idea how widespread it was and how poor our health and science literacy is in the US and probably everywhere. It's terrifying. <laughs> and it's why we are where we are right now. You know, if everybody could have just trusted scientists, 
we would be in a completely different place. I highly recommend Unbiased Science podcast and In the Bubble podcast. They're excellent. Yeah, the misinformation thing, I think, is something I have also, it's really like come to the forefront in the last year. And it's terrifying, I'm finding, because it's like not just pandemic related. It just seems like it's seeping into like every area of life. Sometimes I feel like it's frustrating because I see people, especially online, who just seem like they are in a completely different reality. And it's like, how do we even communicate anymore? Yeah, absolutely. It's been incredibly difficult and it's been a learning experience over the past year, especially doing it on Instagram, to figure out what works. At the beginning, I was kind of like, well, if you don't believe in science, I don't know what to say to you. Like, I'm blocking you. And now I know how to get there with people sometimes, but it takes an incredible amount of patience and time. It cannot be done in one conversation. It takes an incredible incredible amount of work to bring someone back from that brink of conspiracies for me takes a lot of me like pretending that oh yeah yeah no that's a very reasonable question <laughs> let me let me explain that for you i have to often like type out an answer like yeah, fucking crazy <laughs> and then erase that and then write a new one <laughs> I mean, that's a, I just, this conversation could go on all night, but like, while we're on this, what advice do you have for people, especially when it comes to like the immediate issues we have, which is like, okay, we need people to take the vaccine. How do we communicate with people who are hesitant or just believe conspiracy theories about the vaccine? What steps can we take to sort of pull them out of that space? Yeah, I think and this is the hardest one for me, the first thing to do is kind of try to keep it calm, try not to make it an argument, and try not to assume you're going to fix it in one conversation. It, that's not going to happen. So if it's a total stranger on the internet, it's not worth it. Just let it go. If it's a family member, if it's someone you love and trust, that might actually listen to you, take the time. Here, asking them and listening what their concerns are and trying to make them feel <laughs> heard and it is reasonable to have concerns and you see crazy stuff on the internet and it's reasonable to wonder if it's true. So don't make them feel crazy, even if it might sound crazy to you that there's a microchip in the vaccine. Give them reliable, trustworthy sources and take your time and, you know, one issue at a time and hopefully slowly they'll come around. Yeah, I have a ton of great sources on my Instagram. There are so many incredible science educators on Instagram right now like that's been the silver lining of this pandemic is like science is cool and everyone's talking about science and now like scientists are influencers <laughs> so there's plenty of great information to share yeah and on that note can you tell everyone where they can find you and if there's any other people you want to plug as well if people are looking for more resources <laughs> <laughs> yes so I'm at two dusty travelers on Instagram because we used to be a travel account before we became a COVID account. My probably um, another funny name, but King Gutter Baby. Her name is Laurel. She's the queen of all things COVID. She's incredible. If you have time to like look through her highlights, she could answer any question you possibly could have. She is a COVID researcher working on COVID. Um, and then Jessica Malati Rivera is an epidemiologist and has been working with the COVID tracking project. So she's like the data queen. She also does a Q&A um, every weekend, so she'll answer everybody's questions. They're all saved. Any question anyone's ever asked, they're all in her 
highlights. Um, and I would say another big one is Kizzy, PhD, and she is one of the scientists who developed the Moderna vaccine, which is actually really exciting that this like awesome young black woman was one of the developers of the vaccine, because I know communities of color have rightfully a lot of hesitancy around medical care and vaccines. So she has been very front and center saying like, this is safe and this is why you should get it. Well, thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, thanks, you guys. It's been great to catch up. And I feel like I've learned so much. And I hope all our Palka Pals have as well. Yeah, let's do this in another year, hopefully from different locations around the world. And hopefully (laughs) on like a different topic too, like actual travel. (laughs) Yes, that would be lovely. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. But in the meantime, please wear your mask. Bye.